Good morning, River Rock Bible Church. How are you? This, more, uh, this past week, I came across an article from a story that you may remember from a number, actually a couple years ago, about the Costa Concordia. And the, the title of, of the article was this, Captain Coward fled from sinking cruise liner Costa Concordia, leaving 300 passengers and crew to their fate. Now, many of you remember this story. You remember the cruise liner that tipped over uh, off the coast of the Mediterranean, off one of the islands there. And the story goes on and says 300 passengers and crew were still on the sinking cruise ship, the Concordia. The captain was the first one off the ship. The Coast Guard was not even notified until 30 minutes after the ship began to sink, and only then because someone had called their mom, and their mom called the Coast Guard. The story goes on to say that there were a catalog of errors made by the 53-year-old captain. Caused, he caused the collision by sailing too fast, too close to the shore, and he was distracted by a number of people who had no business being on the bridge. And the real tragedy in this story was that 32 people died, lost their lives, uh, as the ship was completing its first leg of this cruise around the Mediterranean. And as I read this story, especially that last line about uh, there around the Mediterranean, it really struck me uh, because many of you that have been with us the past few weeks know that we're in the book of Titus. And about 2,000 years ago, there was a potential disaster on the island of Crete, one of these, the fourth largest islands there in the Mediterranean. There's a potential disaster that was about to take place. And so Paul pins this letter to Titus and he says, Titus, I need you to handle this. I need you to avoid the disaster. And the way to avoid this disaster, the way to set things right in the church is I need you to appoint some leadership. I need you to put some things in order and and you're going to start with leadership. And if you were with us last week, you know that we said leadership is example. Example is leadership. And we saw last week the things that Paul says, hey, these are the requirements for the, for the men, the elders that are going to lead in God's church. But we, we reminded ourselves and we said that, look, the, the reason that Paul gives these requirements, the reason these things are mandated for those who are going to lead in God's church is so that they can live a life that would call others up to maturity in Jesus Christ. So really the things that are mandated for the leaders in that section just before the one uh, that we're going to be in this morning, those mandates are actually for all of us that we would seek to live out those kinds of character qualities. And we said that, that uh, if you remember, we talked about how very few people in ministry today, uh, whether they're professional in ministry as pastors or they're, they're lay elders or lay leadership, very few people are fired because of incompetence. Most people who are asked to leave ministry are asked to leave because of a character failure. And so we said that character matters. And so Paul has, has told Titus, hey, I need you to appoint these kind of men who have this kind of character so that they can call the rest of the church up to this kind of standard, up to this kind of character. And this morning, in, in, starting in verse 11, we're going to get into what Paul says you need to be on the lookout for. So last week we looked at the good example. This week we're going to look at the bad example. Because there were a number of people who were starting to come into the church and they were starting to cause some problems because they were leading people but they were bad leaders. They weren't leading in a way that was honoring to God. And so Paul says, you've got to do something about these guys. You can't just let them come in and lead. And so the question that I want us to think about this week is this, is uh, am I a helpful or a harmful leader? 
Am I a helpful or a harmful leader? And we're going to look at this passage, and just like last week when we said, hey, these are the qualities that the elders are called to to call everyone else up to, we need to examine ourselves and say, wow, uh, these are qualities of a bad leader. Do I have any of these qualities in myself? Because I I want to be a a good leader someday. And and whether you realize realize it or not, you may not see yourself as a leader that it, it, no matter what your role is, that some, some way God has appointed you as a leader somewhere, whether that's in your home, in your neighborhood. Um, every single one of us have people that are following us, and so we want to be sure that we don't have any of these character qualities of the bad leader that Paul lists here. And so this morning, we're going to jump right in, starting in verse 10. Paul says this, For there are also many rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from Judaism. It is necessary to silence them. They overthrow whole households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. Now Paul starts and he says, For there are many. There are many. And it makes me wonder, well, how many? Is it just a few? Is it ten? Is it more than ten? I mean, it's the fourth largest island, so there's, there's many. There's many. And then he goes on and he's going to tell us, what kind of people these are, and he says that they are rebellious people, rebellious people. Some translations say insubordinate, insubordinate people. And what we're going to see is these people that Paul is talking about, the first character quality that we see in a bad leader, the mark of a bad leader, is that they use words that damage. They use words that damage. And we're going to see that these people that Paul is talking about are going to use words that damage people. But the first thing he says is that there's, there's many of them, and they're rebellious, they're insubordinate. This means they're not willing to submit their lives to anyone else. They're not willing to follow someone else. They're defiant. They're defiant. I've heard stories, uh, I, I haven't done much marriage counseling uh, uh, in the past year or so, but I, I've done marriage counseling before, and I can remember one of the kids uh, from my youth group, I did his premarital counseling, and I was asking him, so when you guys get to uh, uh, an issue, when you have an argument, how do you plan on handling that? And his answer, his answer, not mine, was, well, I'm just going to tell her to submit. And I was like, well, let me know how that works out for you, buddy. Uh, <laughs> This is not the kind of leadership that God wants, right? I, I helped him walk through that and see how that was not a good, good plan, but that's not what God wants in a leader. That's not what God wants in us. In fact, if we go to Ephesians 5.21, it says this. It says that we must submit ourselves to one another in the fear or in the reverence of Christ. That the mark of someone who is following Jesus Christ, someone who's put their trust in Jesus Christ and is following him in obedience is the mark of someone who says, out of submission, not to you, but out of submission to Jesus Christ, I will submit my life to you. Yes, I recognize that the pastors and elders are just as much sinners as I am, but I, but I also recognize that God has placed an order, a structure within the church, and when, when you come to me and you say, hey, brother, I see you heading down this road, and I think it's a mistake, that I'm willing to submit my life to that. I'm willing to come under your leadership. Or if it's just uh, someone in my community says, community group comes alongside of me and says, you know, when, when you said that to your wife, I wish you could have seen her face. Knowing that, hey, he's probably been rude to his wife before, but at the same time, having the willingness to submit myself to him and say, you know what, you're right. I shouldn't have spoken to her that way. Thank you. Thank you. And Paul says, man, we've got to look out for people that aren't willing to submit themselves to one another, that aren't willing to come under anyone's leadership. They're causing a number of problems. We've got to be willing to listen to others. And 
an unwillingness to be submissive to anyone is a sign of a bad leader. Paul goes on, and he's going to describe the kind of words that damage. He says they're full of empty talk. Empty talk. Uh, uh, their, their, their words are just full of fluff. They, they say a lot, but they use a lot of words, but they don't actually ever say anything. Now, how many of you have ever been around an empty talker? If you're sitting next to one, just wink at me. All right? Yeah, I got it. Okay, okay. Okay, Jill, yeah, okay. Oh, I'm sorry, Bill. No, I'm teasing. He's a politician. It doesn't count. Uh, That's a joke. We'll edit that out. Don't worry. Uh, The empty talkers, empty talkers. He goes on and he says that they're they're full of deception. They're full of deception. They, They say one thing, but they do another. They make so many promises, but they never follow through. They're full of deception. You never know where the lies stop and where the truth begins. Because, because they're always lying. They're always trying to trick you with their words. They play tricks with their words, trying to get you to believe uh, what they want you to believe. And, and Paul goes on, and I love this about Paul. He says, you want to know who these people are? I'm going to tell you exactly who these people are. He says, especially those from Judaism. Now, literally translated, he's saying, especially those from the party of circumcision. From the party of circumcision. Uh, and if you remember, the circumcision was an outward sign that God gave the Jews as a way to mark themselves as his people. And there was this big discussion all the way back in Acts 15 about do Gentile believers have to be circumcised in order to be truly saved or not? And they settled this way back in Acts 15 and they said, no, we're all saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, so Paul, 15 years later, is having to have this discussion again. Because there are still people out there who are teaching that you're not truly saved. It's Jesus plus. It's Jesus plus circumcision. It's, it's the gospel plus your works. And Paul says, no. Paul says, that is not the gospel. In fact, if you add anything to the gospel, you nullify the entire gospel. The whole point of the gospel is that you don't deserve it. And that you can't earn it. If you're here this morning and you're investigating Christianity and what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, some of you, I know, I know you're here and you're trying to figure out how can I get God to like me? How do I get God to love me? And let me tell you, it's not by your works. Scripture is very clear that that the only thing we must do in order to get God to love us in order to restore a relationship with him, is to put our trust in Jesus Christ alone. You see, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And scripture says when we trust in that, when we put our trust in him, that our sins are forgiven, and that we become the righteousness of God. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become The righteousness of God in him. Think about that for just a moment. If you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, this verse says that you have become the righteousness of God. Judicially speaking, there is nothing more that you can do to make yourself right before God. There's nothing more that you need to do. That's it. You are right before God. He says, you are mine. You are a child of the King, made in my image. And when I look at you, I see my sinless son, Jesus Christ, who's covered you with his blood. And it's out of that identity that comes our desire for obedience. Do you see the difference? We don't obey so that we can be saved. 
It's out of this understanding that, wow, I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ. That, that when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of God. And now I'm going to do what I can to live up to the reality of my identity in him. There's a big difference. Big difference. Um, all the way back in Ezekiel 33, God says, hey, look, this circumcision thing, uh, right now you circumcise yourselves in the flesh so that, that you can be identified with me. But under the new covenant, when the new covenant comes, which, by the way, Jesus Christ brought the new covenant, He says, when that new covenant comes, it will no longer be a circumcision of the flesh, but I will circumcise your heart. God is concerned about what's on the inside. And let me tell you, there's a lot of pressure from the outside world. uh, And and unfortunately, a lot of this comes even from inside the church here in North America today. Today. There are authors, there are preachers, and there are people out there who, who are Christians who will tell you, if you're not doing this, If you don't follow this plan right here every single day, if you can't check this box, then you need to question whether or not you're saved. Let me tell you, nothing can be further from the truth. And when you hear that, you need to run away from it. You need to put down that book and put it in the fireplace. Right? You need to, whatever preacher you're listening to, if that's the gospel that he preaches, you need to stop listening right then and there. Because it's not the genuine gospel. And so if you're here and you're confused by that, what you need to know, the only question you need to know whether or not you're truly saved is this. Have I put my trust in Jesus Christ? Am I trusting in Christ alone? Do I believe that he's the son of God who died on the cross for my sins and that by trusting in him, I have eternal life? God is concerned with the inside. He's concerned with our heart. He's not as concerned with the outside and and. And Paul is telling this to Timothy. He's saying, look, Timothy, I'm not concerned with what you do. And I'm not even really that concerned with how you do it. What I'm concerned with is why you do it. I'm concerned with the why because God is concerned with the why. And let me tell you, there are plenty of times in my life as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, that I have done the right thing for the wrong reasons. And every single time that I've done that, it's almost like God looks down and, and, and almost like I can hear him say, am I supposed to be impressed with that? It's like, I don't care. That doesn't mean anything to me. God is after the why. In fact, when Jesus sits down with, with uh, the Pharisees, remember, you may remember the story in Luke chapter 11, he's having dinner with the Pharisees and, and he goes to dig into the food and he hasn't done the ceremonial washing of his hands and, and they're all bent out of shape because, Jesus, you didn't wash your hands. And Jesus says, man, I can't believe you guys. Luke chapter eleven thirty nine. he says, I, I, I can't believe this. You guys make such a big deal of sitting down and eating with clean hands, yet your hearts are evil and greedy. Jesus is saying, look, God doesn't care about the outside as much as he cares about the inside. You wash the outside of the cup, God wants to wash the inside of the cup. And here's the good news of the gospel. One of the best parts of the gospel is this, that if you let Jesus Christ cleanse you from the inside, the outside will begin to take care of itself. All those things that you're trying to fix on your own, that you find yourself failing over and over and over again, when you let Jesus clean you from the inside, pretty soon you realize that the outside begins to take care of itself. God is concerned with the inside. God is concerned with your heart. And let me, I I could actually spend an entire message just going through verses uh, on this, but I want to point us to, um, I want to point us to one passage and that's in uh, 2 Corinthians 9. 
verses 6 through 7. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 7. And uh, you guys will notice that this is one of the verses that we put up here. And Paul gives us these verses as a model of what New Testament giving is supposed to look like. And it says this. Uh, let's see. Do we have it? 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7. He says this. Remember this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of necessity or out of compulsion, for God loves a giver. Is that what it says? God loves a cheerful giver. God is concerned with the why. And and some of us, we give, and we go home, and and we're like, God, aren't you impressed? I I gave a big, large sum of money last week, and I know that I went home and I kicked the cat after after I had to give all that money, but God, aren't you impressed? And God looks down and says, no, I'm not impressed. But God, don't you realize how much we needed that money, and, and I gave it because you told me to? And God says, no, I'm not impressed. God loves a cheerful giver. You see, we, we can't deal with the what and the how until we understand the why. Why do we do the things we do? As followers of Jesus Christ, we have to understand that the reason we do the things that we do is out of obedience and out of an understanding of our identity that in Christ Jesus, through faith in him, God sees us as righteous and accepts us as his own. And out of that identity comes the good things that he desires to produce in us. And Paul says these people, they're, they're getting the words, they're using their words to damage. And Paul understood the importance of the words that were being used. And, and something I want us to write down is this, that damaged doctrine damages people. Damaged doctrine damages people. And so Paul is saying, hey, these people are teaching the gospel plus. They're teaching Jesus plus. And you need to correct that. In fact, he's pretty strong. And he says this, it is necessary to silence them. Okay, we've kind of whitewashed this in translation. How many of you grew up in a house where you weren't allowed to say shut up? Like if you said shut up, it was like, (gasps) dad's going to go get the belt. You said shut up. All right. And you knew something was coming. Like, that's the end of your brother. Say goodbye. He said, shut up. It's the last time you're going to see him. All right. And so Paul is pretty strong here. He says, it is necessary to silence them. It's necessary to shut them up. He says, Titus, tell them to shut up. In fact, it's even stronger than that. He says, put a muzzle on them. Don't let them talk. It says they overthrow whole households. It's, it's the same thing we saw with the Costa Concordia. They've been flipped upside down. Whole households are flipped upside down. See, Paul knew that damaged doctrine damages people. So if you're visiting River Rock Bible Church this morning, if you're here and you're checking us out, uh, uh, you know, don't ask this question. What's their facility like? What's their children's ministry like? Are there, are there donuts and coffee any good? Those aren't important questions. What you need to ask is how do they handle the Word of God? How do they handle the Word of God? Are they faithful to the word of God? Do they teach what it says? Because damaged doctrine damages people. He says whole households are being turned over by the teaching uh, because they're teaching what they shouldn't teach in order to get money dishonestly. So we see that they, they use words that damage. They use words that damage. And the second thing he says is that they have motives that defile. Second mark of a bad leader is that they have motives that defile. Motives that defile. This gets a little bit further into the why. 
He says, they're teaching things they shouldn't teach in order to get money dishonestly. One of their own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. So rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to the Jewish myths and commands of men who reject the truth. Now, I think this statement that Paul says in there is kind of funny. He's quoting one of their very own prophets, a Cretan. And the Cretan says this, that all Cretans are always liars. And Paul says this testimony is true. You see the humor in that? Anybody else see that? Paul is saying, like, in this instance, the Cretan who says that all Cretans are liars, this one Cretan is actually telling the truth, that all Cretans are liars. And they're evil beasts and they're lazy gluttons. He says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in their faith. Now, the word sound that's used there is the word that we, uh, we get our word hygiene from. It means to be medically healthy. And Paul is saying you, you have to rebuke them, not to embarrass them, not to, not to hurt their feelings, not to make them look bad in front of anyone else. What's the reason? He says that they may have sound doctrine. You've got to show them from Scripture. You've got to rebuke them sharply so that they can be sound in their doctrine. So that they'll stop leading people astray. Uh, we've talked about how Jesus has, has already rebuked the Pharisees uh, for, for doing what they do without ever examining the reasons why they do it. God is much more concerned with why we do things than the how or the what. Does that make sense? He's far more concerned with our heart condition than he is with our outward appearance. And I know that's a struggle for some of us because if you're like me, you grew up in a tradition where you don't smoke, drink, or chew or go with those that do and you better have your shirt tail tucked in and you better use the right words and you better look the right way and you better not ever have a tattoo or anything pierced or, or you know, dance, uh, you know, and all these rules about what you can and can't do. It was about the outward appearance and God says, no, I'm, I'm concerned with your heart. I want to deal with why you do it. And let me tell you, if you think I'm, I'm preaching against obedience to the Word of God, absolutely not. Absolutely not. We ought to all, as those who have, are following Jesus Christ, as we saw that, that in Him, in Him, we are the righteousness of God, that that ought to change us and that ought to, that ought to encourage us and that ought, to, that ought to motivate us to say, I'm going to live out the reality of my identity, that I am in Christ. So all these other things, all these things that, that are warned against in Scripture, yeah, I'm, go- I'm going to do my best to avoid those so that I can live out the reality of my life in Jesus Christ because I want to honor Him. I want to do the things that bring Him glory. And Paul says that these people who are, are, have motives that defile, the first thing they do is that they teach uh, for dishonest gain. They teach for dishonest gain. The, the King James, some of you will recognize this, says that it's, uh, they teach for filthy lucre. And now you know why we don't use the King James. When's the last time you used the word lucre? Right? Nobody uses that word, but they, they, they teach so that they can make a profit. And may God have mercy on the people here in North America who are pilfering the gospel so that they can pad their very own wallets. Because Scripture says that on Judgment Day, that they will be judged very harshly. Those who teach only to make a profit are going to face severe judgment. 
these, he goes on and he says that they're the ones, verse 14, he says this, he says, and they pay it to, uh, may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of men who reject the truth. He says everything that they do, their whole reason for teaching is so that they can get this. All they care about are the oohs and ahs of man and the applause of man. And God says, look, if, if you get the praise of man, then you've already received your reward. I heard a pastor say that as followers of Jesus Christ, we need, to, we need to be more excited about the words that bring forth an amen than an aha. Like we need to, an amen means, yeah, that's the truth. And that's what we need to be excited about, not the ahas. And we don't know what these Jewish myths were that they were teaching. We know in Ephesus they were consumed with numerology and they were, oh, if you take this verse and, and you add the number of this verse plus the number of this verse, then, then, then this is what you get. We get the date of when Jesus is going to return. And so we know for sure. And that's not biblical. That's not scriptural. Well, if you take the word Antichrist and you take out all the C's and the T's and you replace them with an H and an I, you get Hillary. Right? <laughs> Did you know? That devil and Trump both have five letters. Coincidence? I don't think so. That's baloney. None of that is scriptural. None of that is biblical. Don't waste your time on it, Paul says. He says, look into the word and see what the word says. Don't pay attention to these myths. But these people like teaching it because when you teach something like that, people say, oh, he is so smart. We want to hear more from him. 2 Timothy 4.3, Paul warns us that this time is coming. Paul warns us that this time is coming. He says, for the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. NIV, the version I learned it in, says uh, that they have uh, itching ears telling them what they want to hear. So they're just going to tell them all the things that they want to hear. Hey, this is the message you want to hear. You want to hear about how to have your best life now? You come listen to me. You want to hear the truth that's going to be painful at times? It's going to make you uncomfortable? That's going to make you deal with the sin in your life? People don't want to hear that. People don't want to hear that. And so they'll turn away. And Paul says, no, you need to be listening to those who are telling you the truth, not just myths. The last thing Paul says to look out for in a bad leader are actions that deny. Actions that deny. Let's look at verse 15. He says, To the pure, everything is pure, but the, to those who defile are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, disqualified for any good work. They profess to know God. That word profess that's used there is the same word as confess. And so Paul says, hey, this is, this is their confession. They're confessing that they're following Jesus Christ, but their very actions deny that they even know him. So Paul says, you know, we have a word for this. Anybody know the word? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. Paul says these are hypocrites. And the biggest problem that we have in the church today are hypocrites. Now, now, let me say this. Every single one of us, no matter how long you have been a follower of Jesus Christ, you are still a sinner by nature. You are still going to sin. And that's not what we're talking about. 
What we're talking about are people that, that say, oh, yes, I love Jesus, I'm here, I'm following him, and they live like heaven on Sunday, but by Tuesday at 1 o'clock, they're living like hell. And they just completely turn around, and, and what they say they believe doesn't at all match up with the way that they strive to live. And Paul says, you've got to do something about this. You've got to correct them. And I know a number of people struggle when you get to Matthew 18 and you you read that Jesus is teaching about church discipline. And Jesus says in his very own words that there are times when someone who is confronted with their own sin, hey, your life doesn't match up, right? How many of you remember 10th grade geometry, right? 9th grade, I took it in 9th grade geometry. Uh, Lowest grade I got in all of high school. I'm not, I don't think geometry wise. I had Mrs. Rogers, Mrs. Rogers, she had dentures. I couldn't understand what she said. And she wouldn't turn her back to the, to the class, so she would write on the board like this, so I couldn't read anything she wrote. So it's no wonder I didn't do well. But how many of you remember an isosceles triangle, right? The two sides. Two of the sides are the same, right? Uh, they're congruent. The sides match up. They're equal. And Paul says, look, we need to have lives that match up with what we say we believe. And when someone doesn't have a life that matches up with what they say they believe, Matthew 18, Jesus says, we come alongside of them, and in a loving and, and restorative way, we say, man, I'm concerned about you. You, you say you believe this. You say you're, you're following Jesus Christ, but there's this area of your life that just doesn't match up. And the hope is that they would say, they would be submissive, and they'd say, you know what, you're right, thank you. Thank you for showing that to me. But if they're insubmissive, if they're not willing to address it, then it gets to the point where Jesus says you've got to put them out of the church. You've you got to put them out of the church. And, and it's like for some of us, that's mind-blowing. Hey, Jesus is all about getting people into the church. We're supposed to be getting people into the church, not kicking them out. And Jesus says, yes, I, I understand that. We want to be bringing people into the church. But what you've got to understand is that when you have someone who's out there claiming that they're following me and their life doesn't at all match up with what they say they believe, it's incongruent and they're unwilling to change, they're not willing to come into submission to to anyone, including Jesus Christ himself, then you need to disassociate with them. Because what's going to happen is the outside world is going to look at it and say, if that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, count me out. I don't want to have anything to do with it. And Jesus knows that. And and so Paul says, look, they, they have actions that deny Jesus Christ our actions ought to line up with the reality of who we are. Remembering that, that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And yes, we are all still going to make mistakes. We're all still going to fail. But it's a matter of, is your life lining up more and more today than it was yesterday, than it was last year? Are you growing? Or are you continuing to rebel against God's word and against what God has called you to do. In Matthew 7, Jesus says that there will come a time when he will say, uh, some of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Because your actions denied. But, but I led a small group. Depart from me, I never knew you. But I gave... Depart from me, I never knew you. Why? Because maybe their actions did line up, but they never dealt with the why. See, the most important thing is that we deal with the why. 
that we understand why we do the things we do. That's because of our faith in Jesus Christ. They deny them by their works. Actions that deny, words that, defi- that, uh, that damage, motives that defile. We started, we started this message by looking at the cost of Concordia and the price of failed leadership, that it costs lives. And Paul is instructing Titus to be concerned with, with the spiritual lives. Cost of Concordia costs physical lives. Paul says, I'm much more concerned with the spiritual lives um, I've been, been in ministry for about 14, 15 years now since I was in college. And I can tell you that the hardest part of ministry is understanding that as a leader, I will face a stricter judgment. That I will stand before God one day and give an account. Hebrews 13.5. Hebrews 13.5. Paul says, says that you're to follow those in leadership over you as those who will give an account. As those who will give an account. So I understand that someday when I stand before God that, that those who have been under my leadership, the elders of this church, those who have been under their leadership, that we will stand and give an account for the spiritual lives that God has entrusted to us. And there have been times that, that it's caused me to lose sleep wonder if I'm doing the right thing. Am I, am I hearing from God correctly? Am I leading in the right way? Because there is, a, there is a real weight to what God has called the leaders of his church to do. And parents, man, someday you're going to stand before God and give an account for those that God has placed in your life. College students, Someday you're going to stand and give an account to God for, for those that he has placed in your life, that he's entrusted to you to care for their souls. We started by looking at the cost of Concordia and the price of failed leadership. Many of you will also remember the miracle on the Hudson. On the afternoon of January 15, a flock of Canadian geese flew about 3,000 feet above the Bronx in a loose echelon formation, tending their business as usual. At the same time, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 and Airbus A320, piloted by Sully Solenberg, took off from LaGuardia Airport. You know the story. Collision of geese and the Airbus was never expected, but the geese struck the plane with thumps that were captured on the voice recorder in the, co- in the cockpit. The engines reacted with loud bangs and blossoms of fire in what are known as surges and compressor stalls. The fate of 155 people now rested on the shoulders of one person, one leader, one captain, Captain Sully Sullenberg. As a seasoned pilot, he knew that he must not panic. Instead, as a leader, he knew that he must respond and take control. Sullenberg was more than a pilot. He was a first-rate leader. He did not swear He did not cuss. Furthermore, as he gets closer to aircraft, the more straight-laced he becomes. You can hear it in his transmission to the New York radar control immediately after losing thrust. He was calm, concentrated, and completely appropriate. Um, This is Cactus 1549. We've hit birds. Uh, Repeat, Cactus 1549. We've hit birds. We've lost thrust in both engines. We're turning back to LaGuardia. His voice was clear. 
His hand was flying the turn, holding the plane as, at, at its best gliding speed, coordinating the restarting attempts with First Officer Skiles. When the tower gave him clearance of his choice of airport and runway to land, Sullenberg answered, uh, We are unable. We may end up in the Hudson. I repeat, we are unable and may end up in the Hudson. There were choices that now faced Sullenberg, including the geography of New York. The conversation got more and more direct, and finally you hear him saying, Yes, we are going to be in the Hudson. I repeat, we are going to be in the Hudson. Captain Sully precisely guided the massive plane, landing it in a river without any loss of life to anyone in the river or any of the 155 passengers on board. It's a contrast. We started with a leader who's the first one off the ship. He's the first one to evacuate, leaving 32 people to their deaths. And we end with a captain who says, this craft is in trouble, but I have a job to do. I have a job to do. The article says that he safely landed his aircraft in the Hudson, saving 155 people on board. Solenberg was the last one off the plane. In fact, he walked the aisle twice of the cabin to make sure that it was empty before climbing into a life raft and eventually onto a rescue boat. They asked him, why did you do that? And he said, that's just what a leader does. May God grant River Rock Bible Church some Captain Sullys who will spiritually guide and lead us. May God grant you and your families a Captain Sully that will guide and lead your family. This morning as we come to a time where we take two, you'll notice in your bulletin a, a spot that says take two. And there's a spot for you to write down what God is saying to you this morning. And then just below that, there's a chance for you to write down what you're going to do about what God is saying to you this morning. Do you have any of the characteristics of the bad leaders? Maybe you, man, that first thing hit you. Wow, insubordinate. Man, I'm not, I don't like to listen to anybody, and I need to work on that in my life. Maybe you're here this morning, and, and you're hearing about what it means to put your trust in Jesus Christ. And you're realizing that you've tried to do all these things. You've tried to live a good life. You've tried to please God by giving more and doing more and being better. And as you heard this morning, that there is nothing to add to the gospel. That there's nothing that we can add to the death of Jesus Christ. Because as soon as we start adding things on to who Jesus Christ is and the work that he did, it's as, we, it's as if we look to the Father and say, you know what, the death of your son wasn't good enough. And so you hear this morning, and for the first time you're understanding that it's only by God's grace receiving it through faith that I'm saved. Or perhaps you're here this morning and you've long ago trusted Christ, but you've never dealt really with the why you do what you do. And so you've been going through the motions thinking it's just going to make God happier. And you've recognized that there's a, a change of heart that needs to take place. This is your opportunity to spend some time in prayer and to write what, what God is saying to you. And then what steps you're going to take to do it. Let's take two.